0: This is Jeff Orge, the president of Gateway Seminary, and your host for the Lead On podcast. Thanks for joining me this week as we continue talking about important issues related to ministry leadership. The purpose of this podcast is to really try to talk practically and specifically about uh, issues that leaders encounter while trying to lead churches and Christian ministry organizations. And one of those issues is what do you do when you make a mistake? The hard reality is leaders make mistakes, and sometimes those mistakes can be uh, very damaging to organizations and to people, and sometimes they even leave a, a, such a, a, make such a lasting impression or negative impression that leadership responsibilities have to be forfeited or leadership roles are lost. Now, as I'll say several times, no doubt, in this podcast, most mistakes are recoverable. But there are some of course that are what I call fatal mistakes. So let's start by talking about the kinds of mistakes that leaders make and then we'll move into uh, some first steps about how to resolve them and then we'll go into that into even more detail on the second week of the podcast. So there are three kinds of mistakes that leaders make. Uh, The first one is what I call a bad decision. Now, a bad decision is when you as a leader simply make a choice that doesn't work out. Uh, You do it well intended. You aren't being underhanded. There's no sinful component attached to it. Uh, You just make a decision, and it turns out to be a bad one. When I was a pastor, I made a bad decision that I look back on now and just shake my head. How could I have done such a thing? In my very first church, uh, we had... The church had remodeled the auditorium prior to my arrival, and they had taken the old church pews and put them around the outside rim of the fellowship hall, or the outside walls of the fellowship hall. And actually, there were even a few pews too many, so they just had them in the fellowship hall. And anytime we had an event, we had to move them around, uh, uh, jockeying for position, putting them into places where we could put up tables and those kinds of things. Well, after doing this for several times, uh, and as our church started growing, it became more and more cumbersome to have these pews in the way. And then we got to a point where we wanted to put a couple of Sunday school classes in those, uh, or in the fellowship hall. And so I got the brilliant idea that what we needed to do was get rid of the church pews. So I called a local uh, used furniture dealer, actually more like a junk dealer, and I said, Can you come out and uh, tell me what you'll give me for these church pews? So. Uh, he came out and looked at him. Oh, uh, no, excuse me. I said, can you come out and tell me what you'll take to haul away these church pews? So he came out and looked at them and said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll actually, I'll give you $25 a piece for him. Well, I was thrilled. I thought we'd have to pay him to haul the things off. So I sold him the church pews for $25 a piece. I think there were like eight or 10 of them. Well, the following Sunday, uh, the church gathered and some of the deacons said uh, where, where are the pews from the fellowship hall and with some pride and satisfaction in my ingenuity to sell these I said well they're gone I sold them to a furniture dealer uh, and we are now have all this extra room in our fellowship hall and uh, one of the deacons said how much did you get for the pews and I said $25 each I, I think it was like you know, f- you know uh, $400 or something and he said uh You've got to be kidding me. And the whole, I looked around and several deacons just hung their heads and shook their heads. Come to find out those pews were solid oak and uh, probably would have retailed for about $1,000 apiece if they were on sale in an antique store. So I had sold uh, the church pews for a pittance. And not only that, had ignored the emotional value the church had attached to those pews. Ignored the fact that some of them had been donated by members in the past, and were now, uh, and the church was holding on to them as part of that legacy. So my selling the church pews was definitely a bad decision. Again, it was well intended. Uh, it was something that I thought would be helpful. Uh, I I was not trying to do anything underhanded or sneaky or anything sinful. It was just a bad decision. Now, I've made a lot of other bad decisions over the years. I've, I've hired the wrong people. I've allocated money for projects that didn't work out. Uh, I've chosen the wrong camp to send our youth to at a particular time. Um, I have uh, launched initiatives that in evangelism or in church growth or even here at the seminary and trying to train students in particular ways that just simply didn't work out. So one of the kinds of mistakes that leaders make are called bad decisions. But there's a second kind of mistake that leaders make. And these are called sinful choices. Now, sinful choices differ from bad decisions in that they are motivated by or that are they involve something that really is sinful behavior. It's when ego takes over and a decision is made to satisfy the needs of the leader or it's when a leader becomes deceitful or manipulative or does something underhanded or, or does something that has to be hidden or covered up. When there's a sinful component to a bad decision or, or, or to a mistake, excuse me, when there's a sinful component to a mistake, it takes on different dimensions. Well, there have been a number of these that I've done over the years. Uh, and because other people are involved, I want to use one that's, that's a pretty dated illustration, again, back from my earlier ministry years when I was a pastor. The people involved uh, in this story have passed away, but I, I think I can share it now. Uh, I had a church custodian in my earliest ministry uh, that was not doing a good job. And we met with the church personnel committee, and we talked about this. And they agreed this person was not doing a good job and that they had to be terminated. And that as pastor and supervisor of the personnel, it was my responsibility to do this. But quite honestly, I was afraid of this woman. She was, she was uh, very opinionated, uh, kind of outspoken, um, and really difficult to deal with. And so I thought, how can I get rid of her in a way that will keep me from having to have a confrontation And so I set up a manipulative scheme to get her to quit. Rather than terminating her, I called her into my office and said, hey, listen, uh, the church is changing uh, and needs you to change with it, and you are going to have to change your work schedule. You're going to have to start coming in on these certain days at this certain time and doing these certain functions so that we can continue to employ you. Now, I knew what her answer would be because I knew she had another part-time job that really had no flexibility and required her to be at her other job on those same certain days, at those same certain times. Well, when she heard my, uh, my uh, direction, she said, you know I can't do that. I have another job that requires me to be there at these certain times, and there's no flexibility in that position. And I said, oh, really? Well, well in that case, I guess you're just going to have to quit this church job, and we're going to have to move on to someone else. Well, she saw through what I was doing, and so she said, I know what you're trying to do. You're trying to force me to quit, and so I'll just give you what you want. I quit. And she got up and stomped out of my office. Well, I leaned back and thought, that went well. I, I, uh, I accomplished my goal. I didn't uh, fire her. She quit, and I did that in a pretty slick way. Well, a couple of hours later, her husband came to see me, and he barged uh, into my office, slammed the door, and... As I was sitting at my desk, it's the only time in my ministry that I was ever really fearful that I was about to be attacked. Um, I thought to myself, if I stand up, he's going to hit me. So I just stayed seated at my desk, and he leaned over my desk and started berating me for what I had done to his wife, telling me how deceitful, dirty, uh, underhanded, and dirty dealing my uh, relationship with her had been, and really, really... uh, castigated me for what I had done. Well, he stomped out of my office, and I thought, man, that maybe that didn't go as well as I thought it did. Well, over the next few days, you know what happened. Uh, she told a number of people in our church what had happened, including a number of our leaders, and by the following Sunday, um, I had a real situation on my hands. So um, I met with, the, with the, a few people that were my supporters, and I told them what I had done and tried to get them on my side, but While they were not really willing to confront me, they also weren't very supportive. But I kept trying to justify what I had done, and this went on for about three weeks. But the conflict wasn't dying down. So I went to a most trusted member of our church who happened to also be on the personnel committee. He knew the full situation, and he knew me really well, and I really respected this man and trusted him. So I went to his home, and I said, you know the situation with the custodian, and I'm here to ask you if you think I handled that correctly. And his reply tipped his hand to where he was headed. He said, now, let me be clear, you're asking, right? And I said, yes, I'm asking. He said, well, in that case, no, you did not handle it right. Uh, I believe you were deceitful. Uh, I don't believe you handled this with integrity. And I fully understand why she's angry. And uh, I think you have to deal with this uh, by making it right. Well, I understood when he said that to me that uh, he was telling me the truth and that I had to do the right thing. And so I, I left his home, and I went to their home uh, to try to make it right. Now, in, a few, uh, in, the, in next week's podcast, I'm going to go into a lot more detail about how to uh, handle a sinful choice. But for now, let me just conclude the story by saying I went to their home, and I, um, I asked them to forgive me. And we started a process of restoration that ultimately, and I say ultimately because it took a while, led to this uh, issue being resolved. And as I said, I'm going to talk about that in much more detail in the second half of this podcast. But for now, we're talking about three kinds of mistakes leaders make. The first one is a bad decision, like selling the church pews. The second one is a sinful choice, like firing a custodian in a manipulative, underhanded way. But there's a third kind of mistake that I like to call the combo platter. If you like good Mexican food, and who doesn't, then you know what I mean. It's a combo platter. It's where you put several things on the plate that all sort of go together to make a great meal. But in this case, to make a great mistake. A combo platter is when you combine a bad decision with a sinful choice. And again... Uh, going back to my earlier ministry days there was a time when I decided that I needed to launch a TV ministry on local public access television. I thought this would be a key to our church reaching large numbers of people in our community with the gospel and uh, I tried to portray it with that purpose to our church and we spent months uh, trying to create the means and the opportunity by which we got ourselves on public uh, access television. Quite frankly When we came to the end of that bad decision, I had to also admit that it was compounded by a sinful choice, because what was driving the whole thing was really not a desire to reach more people with the gospel, but instead a desire to make my name more well-known and to build up my reputation and to satisfy my ego and to give me the opportunity to say that I was somehow involved in a media ministry in our community. So that was a combo platter. It was a bad decision compounded by a sinful choice. So there are three kinds of mistakes that leaders make. We make bad decisions, we make sinful choices, and we make what I call the combo, which is a bad decision uh, compounded by a sinful choice. Now, at this point you're probably asking, is it really possible for a leader to recover from these things? I mean, when you do these things, uh, not only do you have uh, the setback that happens in your organization, but also you have the loss of leadership stature, the loss of reputation, Um, How is it possible for a leader to recover from making these kinds of mistakes? Well, the good news is it's possible to recover most of the time. Most mistakes that leaders make are recoverable, meaning that if you apply some simple principles to how you respond to a mistake, um, given the appropriate response by a leader and some time for processing among the followers, most of the time, Uh, leader uh, mistakes can be overcome but sadly there are some mistakes that I call fatal mistakes there are fatal mistakes that ministry leaders can make which um, really cost us the opportunity to either lead in our present ministry setting or cost us the opportunity to lead in any ministry setting now let me underscore these kinds of fatal mistakes are rare most leaders, despite what you see in the media or what you hear on uh, uh, hyped by various commentators or by pollsters, most Christian leaders do not make these fatal mistakes. Certainly a few do, but most do not. Most make the kinds of mistakes that I've already been describing, which you can recover from, but some make these fatal mistakes. So what am I talking about? Well, sometimes... People make fatal mistakes, meaning that they, make a, that they make a bad decision or a sinful choice, which is so egregious it can cost them the opportunity to lead in their present setting. Now listen to that carefully. It doesn't cost you the, lead, the opportunity to lead uh, in the future in any ministry setting. It just costs you the opportunity to lead in that present setting. I had this situation once in an in a, in a organization that I led. I had a person working for us that was a good person, a high character, a significant competence, a hard worker, but they were in the wrong position. And they made a series of bad leadership decisions which were undermining not only their effectiveness but the effectiveness of the organization. And one of the hardest uh, decisions I had to make in that particular setting was to go to this person and say, uh, you've made a series of mistakes, and co- they've cost you the opportunity to lead in your present situation. We're going to have to move you to a different job where we think you'll be more suited and have the capacity to thrive. Now, that was hard. It was, it was, it was a hard decision. It was hard for him to hear that. But because, uh, because of the circumstances and the possibility we had of moving the person into another role, uh, they took that job, and I'm happy to say they thrived in that position. But sometimes you can't move a person inside the organization and they have to leave and go find a place to serve in another ministry organization where they're more suited. Sometimes a person is just not well suited for the position they're in. They may have spiritual gifts. They may be professionally competent. They may be a hard worker. uh, They may even have a pleasant personality. But they're simply not suited for the role in which they're currently working And because of that, they continually make a series of mistakes that undermine their effectiveness, and those cost them the opportunity to lead in their present setting. But I underscore, they don't cost them to uh, to be a Christian leader just to lead in their present setting. But the most egregious kind of fatal mistakes are mistakes that cost you the privilege of leading in any Christian organization. Now you may say, well, I just don't believe that anyone makes that serious of a mistake. I think that everything's forgivable and everyone can be restored. Well... I agree that everything is forgivable, and I believe that every person can be restored to Christian fellowship. But that does not mean that every person can be restored to Christian leadership. I think the church makes a mistake, and Christian organizations make the mistake when they equate fellowship with leadership. Let me give you one example. Uh, A number of years ago, a youth pastor sodomized a teenage boy in his youth group. Uh, When this was discovered, the youth pastor was arrested. Um, and through a plea bargain agreement, admitted to what he had done and went to prison. Now, while he was in prison, um, he worked significantly on both his spiritual recovery and on uh, understanding the crime that he had committed. And after several years in prison, he came out really a transformed and changed person. When he came out of prison, um, he was restored to Christian fellowship. Uh, His church welcomed him back accepted his repentance and put him on a program of, uh, of uh, recovery into their fellowship and then uh, allowed him to find a place of service in their fellowship. This was a different church, by the way, in which he had committed the crime. But they did not attempt to restore him to Christian leadership. Now, I've watched this particular situation for um, about 15 years now, and I can tell you that this person has been restored. Um, He has made, uh, he has been forgiven, he's made as much restitution as possible, he's been restored to Christian fellowship, and he has a meaningful place of Christian service. But I would not recommend, nor would I support, moving him back into a Christian leadership role. I think he forfeited that by his past actions. Now you may not agree with that, but I would caution you to be very careful about confusing fellowship with leadership. It's always possible for any person to be forgiven and restored to fellowship. I think we have to be very careful that we make, if we make the assumption that every person can be also restored to leadership. I think there are some fatal mistakes that Christian leaders make which forfeit the opportunity for Christian leadership for having spiritual authority over other people in a ministry organization. So this is a summary of the kinds of mistakes leaders make. There are basically three kinds of mistakes. There are bad decisions and sinful choices, and then those dreaded combinations of those two that work together. And then uh, how serious is this? Well, it it is serious, but frankly, most mistakes, whether they are bad decisions or sinful choices, are recoverable. With uh, proper steps of action, leaders can recover both their leadership stature and their leadership position and their leadership influence, I might add. But there are some mistakes that are so egregious that they cost a leader the opportunity to lead in their present location. They have to be moved to a different position or moved to a different organization. Or it costs them the opportunity to lead in any Christian leadership role. While they can be restored to fellowship, they're not able to be restored to leadership. So now let's move on to the second big idea, and that is how do we resolve mistakes? And today I just want to cover step one which is uh, common to both bad decisions and sinful choices. In other words, this step applies to both. Then next week on the podcast, I'm going to break it down and say now, how do you respond to a bad decision and how do you respond to a sinful choice? Because quite frankly, the responses are different, and the conflation of these or the confusion of these is what causes many leaders to not be able to satisfactorily resolve mistakes when they happen. So, What's the common ground of how you respond to a bad decision or how you resolve a bad decision or a sinful choice? Well, the first step, the common ground between the both is this. Take responsibility for your actions. Underscore. Take responsibility for your actions. Whether you've made a bad decision or a sinful choice, this is step one. Take responsibility for your actions. And a couple of corollaries to this. Avoid shuffling blame or blaming others. And this is so easy to do and, frankly, so tempting. A few years ago, uh, I wrecked a rental car. It was my own negligence. Uh, I was backing out of a tight parking garage in a lower level. There were posts everywhere. Uh, I turned too sharply watching the back end of the car and Uh, scraped the entire left front fender against a large post, doing significant damage to both the fender and the bumper and the front end of the vehicle. Well, I knew that that was certainly my responsibility. There was no shuffling of blame possible, so I uh, drove to the rental car location, uh, showed them what I'd done. They handed me a phone book thick stack of forms to fill out, And I started the process of getting the insurance resolved and the claim resolved and the rental car company satisfied. No problem. Six weeks later, I'm at a hotel uh, asleep in my room. My rental car is in the parking lot and someone backed into it. And in doing so, caved in the, left, the, the uh, right rear fender and the trunk and, uh, uh, the, and the bumper significant damage well when I walked out of my hotel room and saw this my first thought was that is not my fault I reflected on the fact that I had just had a wreck in a rental car six weeks before I knew the process that had to be completed and frankly I didn't want to do it I also was concerned it was going to jack up my car insurance rates or jack up my rental rates in the future on rental cars and so I said I I, I'm not doing this this is not my responsibility this is not my fault and I actually stood there in that parking lot for a few minutes thinking about how can I get out of this. And then, like being slapped across the face by, by a cold, wet salmon, God just reached down and got my attention and said, What are you thinking? What are you thinking? Why are you trying to weasel out of this? Why are you trying to shuffle the blame? What's wrong with you? So I drove again to the rental car place and told the person what had happened, and she said, Well, sir, I know this seems unfair, but... Your contract says very clearly that while the car is under your control, anything that happens to it is your responsibility. So you're going to have to go through the process uh, on this again with another rental car wreck. All I'm telling you is that uh, it is easy for any of us to want to shuffle the blame, to want to make it somebody else's fault, to want to have somebody else take responsibility. But the first step in resolving a, a bad decision or a sinful choice The first step of resolving anything that happens like this is to take responsibility for your actions. Now, in this particular situation, uh, I don't know that I made a bad decision or a sinful choice. I just simply had the responsibility because I chose to have a rental car and I chose to park it in a certain location. I had to take full responsibility for whatever happened there. And then I would go on to say, part of being a leader when it comes to bad decisions and sinful choices is, is that you must assume responsibility for what happens on your watch. Now, a number of years ago, I had a friend that was in the Navy, and he had a sign that was a magnetic sign on his pickup that said, every day in the Navy was like Sunday on the farm. <laughs> I thought, what does that mean? So I asked him, and he said, well, Sunday on the farm is the only rest day, and it's the best day, and that's the way every day was for me in the Navy. And I said, well, what, what, what made the Navy so good? He said, well, I was a teenager and in a lot of trouble, and I went before a judge, and the judge said, you have two choices. You can go to prison or you can go to the Navy. And I thought, I'll go to the Navy and show those boys a thing or two. I joined the Navy, and then he said, that was the first place I met real men. And I said, well, what defines a real man? And my friend told me, a real man is someone who takes responsibility for himself and for what happens on his watch. And that stuck with me all these years that this young man was so impacted because he saw maturity in men who would take responsibility for what happened to them and what happened on their watch. You know, as a leader, you're responsible not only for yourself but for what happens on your watch. If a person that works with you makes a mistake, it's your responsibility. Now, you may say, that's not fair. Don't I have to hold them accountable? Yes, in appropriate ways. But when you report that decision to your board or your governing group or to whoever you're responsible, You use I terminology, not they terminology. For example, at the seminary, I never say to our board, a vice president did this or told me this, or an accountant said this or told me this, or our attorney said this or told me this. Once I put my trust in the subordinate and once that person gives me information, I make the decision to use it. It now becomes my responsibility. And so I use we language when I celebrate our successes and I use I language when I talk about our mistakes or our sinful choices because... They are my responsibility. Now, how you handle this step often determines how your followers will respond to you. A number of years ago, I dealt with two situations within just a few short weeks of each other. They were both moral failure situations in in ministry leaders. Uh, The first one uh, was an adultery situation, and in that case, the person lied about what they had done, tried to hide it, and for nine months after they were exposed, uh, created chaos in the organization by threatening legal action and other kinds of responses to undermine them taking responsibility for what they had done. In the other situation, which, which, which involved prolonged misuse of pornography and going to strip clubs and other voyeuristic activity, um, that particular ministry leader uh, came clean about what he had done, wrote a full letter of contrition, resigned with his letter, uh, asked the church for nothing in return, except the privilege of fading quietly away. Uh, When the first person was uh, met with, counseled with, consulted about how to move forward, he was resistant, obstinate, and difficult. When the second person was met with, he was humble and contrite and broken. The fact of how these men handled their failure went a great distance in determining how the churches and how the organizations responded. In the first situation, it, it turned into a legal standoff, which uh, became very tense and cost the person his relationships, not only with, his ministry, with the ministry organization, but ultimately his family and had significant damage in extended family relationships. But in the other case, the church went back to the failed ministry leader and said, um, we accept your resignation and you can no longer have a leadership role in our church, but we want to do these three things for you. We want to put you in a recovery program that involves us paying for some intensive counseling and then follow-up ministry to you and your wife. We want to put you in a support group of couples in our church that will stay with you over the next year to make sure that you survive this ordeal. And third, we want to continue to pay for your uh, medical expense and medical coverage to ensure that the treatment that we're going to get for you uh, is, is covered. And four... Uh, although the church didn't do this the fourth thing they did was we said we're going to contact our network of people in our church and that our church is connected to and try to find you secular employment now i've watched both these stories again for many years in the first case um the consequences have been difficult and and negative but in the second case the person has really completely recovered Uh, they are uh still a very active and vibrant christian they are still in the same marriage Uh, their family remained intact and their church and this relationship modeled really what it means to restore a person to fellowship while not restoring them necessarily to leadership. What was the difference? Well, there was some difference in the activity that they had been involved in. I understand that. Uh, but the real difference in how these situations turned out was not so much what they had done, but how they responded. In the first case, the person avoided, uh, shuffled the blame and blamed others and avoided responsibility. In the second case, The person accepted the blame, blamed no one else, assumed full responsibility, in fact tried to take on even punitive responsibility, if you can say it that way, uh, and the church responded in a more gracious way. So leaders make mistakes. There's no escaping this. We make bad decisions, we make sinful choices, and most of the time we can recover from those, especially if we'll take this first step, and that is for a bad decision or a sinful choice. Take responsibility for your actions. Even so-called fatal mistakes, those that cost us the opportunity to lead in a ministry setting or those that may even cost us the privilege of Christian leadership, even those can largely be resolved, restoring us at least to Christian fellowship, if not back to leadership by these steps I'm going to lay out. And this first one is so vital. Step one, take responsibility. Well, that's a first look at how to handle mistakes in leadership. Join me next week on the podcast for the follow-up as we, as we map out the rest of a process for dealing with mistakes in leadership. And in the meantime, lead on.